And thank you guys for not being at the fair. I appreciate that. The fair will be there this afternoon. It'll be there tomorrow. It'll be there all week from what I understand. And you're not there. And I appreciate that. The fair's great. I'll be there later in the week. But this is the place to be this morning. Thank you if you're joining us online as well. And this morning, you're going to need the notes that are on your app because I'm going to be talking about a lot of things that aren't going to be on the screen. And if you want to follow along, you probably want to be looking at the PDF from your church app. And so if you have not downloaded the app, it is on the App Store. If you have an Apple like most normal good folk, if you have an Android like the 2% of the population that preserved the past, um, it's in whatever store you guys have as well. And it's capital with an, I just alienated 2% of you. I'm not worried about that. Um, it's uh, capital with an O, Capital City Church. And uh, there's a notes section there that will give you the PDF of most of what I'm going to talk about today if you're interested and some supporting scriptures. Man, today is a story that I'm excited to, to communicate to you. It's a story I've been praying about all week. And uh, as I mentioned in our, our earlier service, you know, I pray all week long, our staff pray, what is the message that we need to hear as a church? I mean, there's an unlimited number of messages that you can communicate as a pastor from Scripture, um, but I believe there's one message that God has in store or in mind for us today, and I think we found that today. I believe this is an important message, and I'm going to tell you ahead of time that for some of you, you are going to get uncomfortable. For some of us, um, we've already been uncomfortable, and for those who get uncomfortable, you're going to have a tendency to get a little judgy and maybe a little defensive and then turn off the brain and stop listening. So Pastor Dan and I, as we've talked through this message and worked through it, we've gotten a little defensive and a little bit, um, you know, had a difficult time sort of evaluating where we are. We've already worked through it. I want to encourage you to not allow that to happen to you. There's three types or categories of people I'm going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about blowing up the God box. Some of us have created a box in our lives that we force God to live within. Now you say, Pastor, God doesn't live in a box. I know that. But do you know that? That's the question, right? Because many of us, we treat God like he lives in a little box that we have fabricated. Some of us, we were born boxy. We were just born into a culture or a community. Not born sexy, born boxy. A lot of us can relate to that. That's how we were born. And we were raised in a tradition that made us boxy. For some, we are boxed in. We've boxed ourselves in because our view of God is limited and we know what we've been through. We know who we are. We know what we don't know and we don't think there's any way God's going to reach us, that he doesn't care. Some of us turn our box into a boxing match and we weaponize religion to try to control, to try to beat people into submission, to try to debate people into sound reasoning and judgment, even perhaps into life change. We lob truths over a wall, the walls of the church, blindly hoping that we hit somebody in the head. If it hurts, so be it. Maybe they change. These three types, these three people are addressed here in this passage, and I think you'll find yourself in here. Now, for me, for some of you, the past that we are trying to preserve stands in direct contrast to the kingdom that God has planned. The past that we are trying to preserve can stand in direct contrast to the kingdom that God has planned. And some of us hang on to our past which can be good, but also bad, 
in such a way that it controls what we think God can and will do and limits us experiencing the kingdom of God that God has planned. When the rules become the master and keeping the rules more important than people, we find ourselves in direct opposition to God. So we're going to talk today about a story from Jesus' life and from the book of John. And John contains about seven different miracles, or he calls them signs, that point toward who Jesus is, signs so that we will believe. And interestingly enough, he does these things on the Sabbath. And you may say, who cares about the Sabbath? And if you said that, I'd be excited because that means I get to answer. So I'm going to pretend you said that, and I'm going to say the Pharisees cared about the Sabbath. Now you say, well, we're supposed to preserve the Sabbath, right? I mean, one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath, and, you know, I grew up in a tradition that kept the Sabbath um, to different levels, and really we know the heart of the law was take a day off from your vocation and focus on other things, right? But, and Jesus in his own, own words said to us, that the Sabbath was given to man, not man given to the Sabbath. And I can explain that in a different way that I hope will, uh, hope will, will set the tone for our, what we're going to talk about today and maybe help make sense a little bit. When we get too caught up on the rules and enforcing the rules, ignoring the way that Jesus went about his life and find ourselves in direct opposition to what God has planned, well, we run some risks. And the risks that we run are the risks of missing out and missing our purpose. When my son and daughter-in-law decided they were gonna have kids, they announced to Joy and I, kind of, hey, we're thinking about having kids. That's what kids say, right? We're thinking about it. And I'm like, well, it's about time. You guys have been married for years and you know, we've been ready for grandkids for a long time. And so Joy started sending them toys for a baby, right? Just to remind them that they're thinking about having kids. And it took a while, and so I'm like calling Richard going, hey, you know how everything works, right? I mean, we didn't, you know, and I'm, I'm just kidding with you. They had kids finally, but they didn't sit around and go, look at this pile of toys in our living room. We have so many toys, we better have a kid to play with them, right? No one does that. You have a child, and then you buy the toys for the child for their benefit or for their good. God doesn't say, look at all these laws that I have. I better create some people to follow them. He creates his laws so that people can find Jesus for the good of the people he created that lead to freedom. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it and to bring a freedom that you can experience if you'll let yourself. So if you've been born into it, if you have boxed yourself in, or if you use the Bible and Christianity in a boxing match, trying to beat the world around you into submission, there'll be something here for you today. And at the end of the day, I'm going to invite you to put some dynamite in your God box and blow it to smithereens. Now, before we get started, or as we get started, I want to remind you that I believe 100% in God's Word. I believe that it's absolutely true that in its original form, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down by human authors, there's no error. I believe it's the sole authority for what we do, how we live. I believe that. But I have not met many people who've caused trouble, particularly within a church, who've had unforgiveness in relationships, but been around church or Christianity for a while, who've split churches, who've caused division, who've hived off into factions, 
And I've never stepped back and go, you know what that person needs? A little more Bible study. If they just knew a little bit more about the Bible, they'd be better off. But many times what we do say is if we would just do what it is that we know, a lot of the problems that we create for ourselves, well, we wouldn't see in the first place. But there's a tension there. More Bible study, more Bible study, more Bible study. The disciples asked for that. And Jesus said, I'm going to teach you. But just like the book of James tells us, I'm going to teach you as you choose to do it. And as you hear it, you do it. Because if you don't do it, you don't know it. And if we don't do it, we don't know it. And then we miss the point. So we're going to be in the book of John in John chapter 9. And this story is a story about Jesus healing a man born blind. And if you're paying close attention, you're playing the home game, uh, you know about two and a half years ago, we talked about this passage from a different perspective. It's been on my mind. It connects so closely to what we talked about last week that I wanted to bring this up and point out three different parts that we've talked about or then we've talked about before. As he went along, Jesus saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, what a terrible thing to ask. Who sinned, this man or his parents? The Old Testament leaders, the Pharisees, they believed in karma. They wouldn't call it karma, we do, but they believed that what you do well, brings back various punishments or rewards. But not only that, but what your parents do, well, it brings back those same kinds of punishments. Can you imagine? For some of us, it'd be a great thing for us to be able to ride the coattails of our parents. For some of us, not so much. But the reality is we don't ride spiritual coattails in as much as we receive things back from the universe based on what they've done or haven't done. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the church, believed that even if a woman went into a pagan temple and got pregnant later, that she would likely be giving birth to a baby with birth defects because that's the way it worked. And so this man clearly had something wrong with him. Now the disciples ask a question and their question was well-intended. It was well-meaning. They were genuinely confused. They wanted to know and it's not their fault. But Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be seen in him. Now, how important is that? When we talk about this, it, it's difficult. And you go, well, how come God would make somebody blind so that God's power could be seen in him? But it's not just being born blind that Jesus is talking about. We talked last week about the Apostle Paul discussing a thorn in his flesh, a stake in his heart that he wishes that would be removed. And he asked Jesus, take it away. And Jesus said, no. And he said, take it away. And Jesus said, no. And he said, take it away. And Jesus said, no. And then Jesus said, my gracious favor is all you need. Remember what he said? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And you're like, all right. And then Jesus says, it's when you're weak that other people see how strong I am. Perhaps Jesus is saying that every weakness or struggle that we have, every experience in our life that makes us dependent on God is allowed in us so that God's works might be displayed. Because the world doesn't need to see any more superficial, fake Pollyanna Christians. They need something real. So the disciples, they ask, 
They were from a legalistic background, many of them from a church, from a religious system that chose to control. They had teachers that had two different kinds of laws. The Pharisees had two different versions or volumes of scripture. One was the law and the prophets, the one, the original one, the right one that was written down. And they had another one that was called the oral law. It was one that they say was given to Moses verbally by God and that they didn't write it down because God said, don't write it down. God said to Moses, just pass it on by story. Just tell the next person who tells the next who tells the next. And can you imagine how, how much easier could it be to control somebody, to fabricate truth, to, to, to make sure that you dictate which way the church goes than not to have anything written down, but just to say this is what God said and have it passed from one generation to the next. And when the rules become so muddy, and we know instinctively it can't be biblical, we have to make a choice. I love the way I was raised. I'm grateful for the way I was raised. But I was raised in a denomination that loved the rules. And as a kid, my parents taught me to love the Bible. And the more I was interested in the Bible, the more I realized that a lot of the stuff that I was being taught, a lot of the rules that they were enforcing, a lot of the people who were being judged, a lot of the denominations who were being alienated, it couldn't be right. And I remember as a young man coming to a crisis and saying, this Christianity thing, if all of this is true and this really is the way it is, then this can't be true. So either this isn't true and I walk away or there's something else. And I remember we make such mountains out of such molehills and we try to control people and we try to divide people, we try to label people. And Jesus said to his disciples, you know, you've been taught wrong. Some grew up in the opposite tradition where you didn't have objective truth, where the Bible wasn't a thing, where somebody else told you what God thinks. And you knew just as instinctively or intuitively that that wasn't right. And Jesus said, I understand the past, but your past doesn't define you. Perhaps there's another way. So you and I are challenged to take the good from the past and separate the bad from the past and to make sure that what we're doing is biblical. So Jesus was setting the disciples free. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned because this happened so that God's work might be displayed in him. And then Jesus said, time's running out. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when nobody can work. And he says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world, but I'm not gonna be here for long. Let's keep moving. After saying this, now I think this is hilarious, and you'll have to bear with me because I find humor in weird spots in the Bible. Think about this being a movie. I don't think it's funny at all that a man's blind. Um, blindness happened a lot, a lot more commonly in Jesus' day than it does in our day. Um, many times a, a woman would have a, actually a disease that she would pass on to the kids through the birth process that would cause blindness. It was tragic, um, and I'm not making fun of that or making light of it. What I am laughing about is the way Jesus chose to do this and how um, unusual this probably would have been to the person who was healed and also to the people watching. Because you got a blind guy who, what, can't see. 
And you got Jesus who's getting ready to do something. He's going to display his power for the good of this man who's being healed, for the disciples who are watching, for the Pharisees and for us. And so Jesus, he stops and he spits on the ground. Now before his disciples could say, Jesus, we don't spit this close to the temple, or good Christians don't spit. I don't know if that was a rule. At the day. Maybe it's a rule. Maybe it's a good practice. Maybe not to spit, right? After all, we've just come through a pandemic. Maybe he hocked a loogie. I don't know. <laughs> now, can you imagine the guy who's, I mean, I'm not being sacrilegious. He doesn't say, how would Jesus spit? Maybe it was a church spit. You know, I, I don't know. But the dude standing there just hears somebody spitting, right? And then Jesus squats down. And he starts kneading in the ground, making some mud. How does he put it on the guy's face? Is he like, hey, Peter, hold him down because he's not going to like this. Does he sneak up to him and smack him? I mean, does he walk up and go, hey, I'm going to put, I don't know. I'm sure however Jesus did it, it was perfect because that's Jesus. But it's hilarious to me. So the guy's standing there going, what did you just do, right? He doesn't know who Jesus is. With mud on his face. And Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The word Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came home, what? Seeing. A man who'd been talked about his entire life. A man who'd been turned into a proper and object lesson. A man who was a walking example of sin and sin's consequences. A person who would never be allowed in the church, who would be summarily judged along with his family and anybody else who was close to him. Went home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, because begging's all they could do back in the day if they were blind, they ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Now, that's a, a normal question. These are well-intended neighbors. And friends, let me point out something to you real quick. When Jesus changes your life, the people around you see, and they ask questions. What's different about you? Something's different about you. We don't have to throw hand grenades over the wall blindly trying to hit people. When we live life change, the world sees it. And God provides an opportunity for us to explain it. Now this guy didn't know, which is gonna lead us to our second point. But they said, isn't this the same guy? Some said, yeah, probably, and others are like, nah, can't be. He only looks like him. But the man insisted and said, yep, I'm the guy. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. And so he replied, I don't know. A man they called Jesus, he made some mud, put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. They said, where is this man? Now here's the second hilarious thing, I think. What a dumb question, right? The guy's like, I don't know, I couldn't see, right? Because Jesus slipped away. Don't ask a blind man where somebody is. It's just not right, not the right thing to do. But they ask him, I don't know, I wasn't healed yet, couldn't tell. Your guess is as good as mine. You guys are comfortable with that, right? I mean, it's right here. I'm not, I mean, okay, we're all, we're all right. Okay. Where is this man, they ask him. I don't know, he said. Then they brought him to the Pharisees, this man who'd been blind. Here's where the plot thickens. It gets dark. Going to church to the people who say they speak for God, 
to the rule masters, the people who passed down the law of the prophets, the real law, and all of the oral law that supposedly was given by God to Moses that people used for control. They brought him to the Pharisees. Now the problem is, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. So the Pharisees had a conflict. Something good happened for somebody. Somebody was freed from a disease. Jesus had done a miracle, but it violated the Sabbath. The rules, after all, was man made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath made for man? It depends on your perspective. If the rules are more important than people, we miss the point. And so they're struggling. So they ask him again. And the man told him again. And they said, this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But a few of them said, how could a sinner perform these things? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, and the man's like, I don't really know who he is. He's a prophet. Now, we know the man knows who Jesus is later in the story, but he doesn't know. All he knows is he met Jesus, and things changed. A second time, they summoned the man, after they'd talked to his parents, and they said, you need to give glory to God by telling the truth. This miracle couldn't have happened to you because after all, it was on a church day and that's a violation of the law. Not only, by the way, was healing on the Sabbath a violation of the law, and the law said, this was not the written law, this was the oral law, that if somebody was dying on the verge of death that you could try to keep them from dying just barely so that they could make it to a Monday or a Sunday depending on when the Sabbath was so that you could actually heal them. Well, you couldn't knead or mead the mud Spitting mud, that was against the rules too. I mean, Jesus, I mean, my goodness, he's breaking rules all over the place. The second time they summoned the guy, they said, give glory to God, tell the truth. We know this man's a sinner. And this man who was healed, he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. And this is probably my favorite statement, at least one of them in the New Testament, not made by Jesus. He says, only one thing I do know. I used to be blind, now I can see. I used to be blind, then I met Jesus, now I can see. And the point I want you to take from this is, you don't have to know everything to believe something. This man knew almost nothing, but believed something. And as he believed, God blew up his box. A man who probably by this time believed, he boxed himself in, believed that he had it coming, believed that his parents had sinned, maybe even interviewed his parents. That's what I would do. Did grandma or grandpa do something wrong? I mean, are you guys, have you always been on the straight and narrow? What is it I'm paying for? Which sin? I want to be mad at somebody. I mean, there'd have to be something that, that you, you would do. And this guy, he says, look, I don't know. My box, the person I thought I was, what I thought I deserved, how far I thought I was from God, he said, I was wrong. And so his box that he had carefully constructed, he'd boxed himself in, blew up. 
And I was thinking about this and thinking about the kind of person that Jesus comes for. I was thinking about when Jesus called Matthew, one of his disciples. The story's found in the book of Matthew, it's in your notes. And the Bible says that Jesus, accompanied by a couple of his disciples, his good church boys, right, trying to figure things out, trying to learn, people just like you and me, influenced by their past, positively and negatively, learning a different way. Jesus walked up to Matthew, a tax collector, a dirtbag, scum of the earth, organized criminal, a thug. The church I grew up in, he would have had long hair and tattoos and probably an ACDC shirt, guaranteed, right? They had to typecast him just perfectly. And Jesus walked up to Matthew, and I'm sure these other two who were with Jesus are like, oh, this is going to be good. Jesus is fixing to give him what for. He's going to let him know how bad he is. And Jesus walked up to Matthew, and he's like, hey, follow me. The box that Matthew had constructed, he wasn't God's kind of person. He'd done too much, gone too far sin to the point where God didn't care or he could never be forgiven maybe he had gotten to the point where he didn't care and Jesus said follow me now the other disciples with Jesus probably stepped back and said wait a second if you let him follow you I'm not sure we're going to stick around but they'd seen too much by this time and so Matthew's like I where are we going to go and Jesus said I'm going to your house back in the day I mean you come to my house that's social, it's fun. Back in the day, it's personal. You only let somebody come to your house. You only went to somebody's house if there was a connection and acceptance. I don't like people dropping in at my house. I don't mind if you come over. I just want you to text me first. I don't like drop-ins. One of the reasons is I want to clean up. I want to make it look like I live in a way I don't really live so that you think I live in a way that I don't live, right? That's the truth. Give me 10 minutes so I can throw all the junk in the guest room, right? I mean, that's just the way it works. Can you imagine Jesus saying, I'm coming to your house, but not giving you advance notice, and he walks into your house and sees your junk, and he said, I knew you lived this way, and you know what? I love you anyway. Jesus goes to Matthew's house, and he's hanging out with tax collectors. Matthew invited his friends. He sent out a group text. They're all there, all the tax collectors, a bunch of sinners, the disciples sort of hanging out on the outskirts, right? Not totally in, not totally out, sort of like, I don't think we should be here, but this is kind of fun. The church people on the outside whispering. Can you believe Jesus is hanging out with people who are different than us? They look different, they vote different, they came from a different background, they came from a different denomination, they're, I mean, whatever it would be. Oh, these people are sinners. We shouldn't even be here. Well, the Pharisees, they knock on the door, send a message into Jesus. Go tell Jesus he shouldn't be here, in my paraphrase. Do you really know you're with all these people? I mean, you're ceremonial and clean. You can't even come to church until you confess your love of people. So Jesus hollers from the middle of the room, hey, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Matthew probably heard it, his friends. Jesus would have said it in such a way where they wouldn't even have been mad. They'd have been like, yep, we're sick, right? And then he kind of tells his disciples, he's like, you know, I've called you. They're like, well, we're not sick. Jesus said, every person has dirty stuff in their house. 
I've never met a righteous person. You're sick. Now, the box, the God box, the way this man had boxed himself in blew up. Boom. Because God, he doesn't do things on our terms. He's not even that predictable. But sometimes, well, we miss God. I was blind, but now I see. Then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, and by this time he's mad. You can't get too mad because these are preachers, right? Preachers with political power who can excommunicate you from religious, you know, activities and hurt you financially and everything else, um, like powerful politicians. But he's mad. And he's like, I already told you and you didn't listen to me. Do you want to hear it again? Why? I don't know. I'll tell you. And he says, do you want to become his disciple too? Talk about smart Alec, right? But he has to throw that little jab. Do you want to follow Jesus too? Do you want to be a lover of people, not an enforcer of rules? But the past they were trying to preserve stood in direct contrast to the kingdom that God had planned. And they couldn't let go of their control. And they hurled insults at him. And they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We never we're disciples of Moses. We're better than you. We're smarter than you. We know more than you. We're holier than you. We have far more Bible study than you do. We have a corner on the market of all truth. And they weaponized religion and turned it into a boxing match. So they run over to the corner we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And they form the circle of the church, and they worry about enforcing all the rules and deciding who's out and who's in. Lobbing truth bombs over the walls, hoping they hit somebody. But the reality is they weren't becoming more holy, just more separate and more weird the definition of irrelevant. And then you have Jesus over here saying the Sabbath is made for people, not people for the Sabbath. How could you miss the point? And he offered grace, he offered forgiveness, and he offered a different way. Ephesians 3.20 tells us to blow up your God box. Don't let go of the truths in Scripture. And I promise you I'm going to keep teaching them to you because I believe in the Bible. But be willing to blow up your God box to recognize and realize what is biblical, what is cultural, and what is traditional and decide which hill we're going to die on. For me, it's this one over here. Ephesians 3.20 says, God can do anything. This is the message paraphrase. 
God can do anything, you know. Now, wouldn't that be a cool way for us to greet each other? If I see you on Sunday morning, I'm like, hey, God can do anything. And you're like, you know, right? God can do anything. And you're like, you know. God can do anything. What would you say? You know. You, know? you said that like a Minnesotan, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you're not from the south in Iowa like we are, are you? God can do anything. You know. Can he do anything? Yes. Why box him in? But we do. The box is comfortable. The box is predictable. The box seems safe. God can do anything you know. Far more than you could ever imagine or guess or even request. Where in your wildest dreams? He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. Isn't that great? His spirit deeply and gently working within us. Glory to God in the church because that's where it should be seen. Glory to God in the Messiah, in Jesus, because that's the reason. So my invitation to you as we close is perhaps you've blurred the lines between the cultural, the traditional, and the biblical. And that's causing us to miss the opportunities to love the world around us. That we've forfeited the right to be an articulate voice, speaking out for Jesus and offering a uniting at the foot of the cross. Perhaps you've decided that because you don't know everything about God, you can't believe anything. And you've put him in a box. Whichever end of the spectrum you're on, today can be a different day. Here's why I'm worried about it. Here's why I'm preaching the message. This is why I'm concerned. Because God has something amazing planned here. Why? Because we are weak people dependent on God. And God's gracious favor is all we need because his strength is going to be seen through our weakness. And it's because of our dependence that the world around us can see who Jesus is and what true strength looks like. And my God can do anything, and I'm going to blow our box up, holding on to the timeless truths of the word of God for his glory so that our world can be a different place. And if we're not careful, we'll miss it. And I don't want that to happen. Father, thank you for my friends.